0: What is it that you want, Theodore? What do I want? I want respect. That's what? Respect for human life and American property. And I'll send the Atlantic squadron to Morocco to get respect. That's illegal. Why spoil the beauty of a thing with legality?
1: Alright folks, welcome to Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast that reviews the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. This is episode 45, and today we're talking about The Wind and the Lion. This is our third John Milius film, and this great and fantastic movie stars Sean Connery, Candace Bergen, and Theodore Roosevelt. I'm, I'm sorry, I meant to say Brian <laughs> Keith is Theodore Roosevelt. See this movie, and you'll know why I got confused. All right, I'm your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my good and dear friend, Mark. Why spoil the beauty of things with legality, Slover?
2: It seems quite obvious, I would think, Ambassador Roney. We must seize the podcast and make our own negotiations at bayonet point.
1: Well done. Like it. And here is our other good and very dear friend, Jeff. Where is my human step stool, Muncie?
2: (laughs) He is our human (laughs) step
3: stool. What are you talking about? I hope in the event of my untimely death, I will come up with something a little better than damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. Okay. And last, but certainly
1: not least, is our other good and dear friend, Ken. Just call me Razuli, Defender of the Faithful Roni.
3: Steve, you and I are old men, and we've seen these disastrous podcasts come and go. <laughs> but our problem now is to make this one go and make it look good.
1: <laughs> Bravo My, Ken wins yep. Well done, nice, great Hello. As I said, this is uh, The Wind and the Lion This is a, a John Neelyas film As I said, our third one uh, The first one was Conan uh, The second one that we did with him was uh, Red Dawn And this is the third one And it's got, as I mentioned A pretty fantastic cast in there uh, When you look at Sean Connery, Candice Bergen And... Uh, I almost said Theodore Roosevelt again, but uh, it's it's Brian <laughs> Keith. Great movie, uh, made in the, I believe, mid-70s. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark. I think this is, what, 75 maybe? Yeah.
2: yeah so. same,
1: year as, same year as Jaws. Same year as Jaws. Okay, very good. And uh, the story is it's at the beginning of the 20th century, and an uh, American woman is abducted in Morocco by a Berber tribe, actually the last of the Barbary pirates and there are uh, attempts to free her range from diplomatic pressure to military intervention. Mark, uh, help me out on this one, because like I said, I've never seen this movie before. This is my first viewing. Really don't know a whole lot of the history of this period and that, but was Morocco really uh, pretty much a a sultanate that was garrisoned
2: by the French and the Germans? and, And My understanding, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong, was it was pretty much that way great powers all had their foot in the door, to some degree. Yes. Yes, and they I mean, were all playing the different interests off on one on, on each other. The, the whole Petty Karras storyline, Milius took, based on Ion Petty Karras, who is a man, and none of, what, none of what transpires in the movie actually occurred beyond the name, and that the Rizuli did kidnap this guy, and that was what he was known for. But Milius took this, and I think made a great little adventure movie, to show a, a period of time you don't see often in, in movies. The turn of the century, pre-World War II, the height of imperialism, and it's got Theodore Roosevelt. But Morocco, you know, I, think, I think it does a fairly – I mean, Milius is known for being fairly historically accurate. Obviously, he took liberties to tell this story. And Morocco was one of those last enclaves that the imperial powers were picking, picking over. Wouldn't you say that's about the sum of it, Ken?
4: Yes. Actually, you know, I I took a class in pre-World War I European diplomacy years back, and this incident was covered in the class. It was not a big incident, but it was, you know, something noteworthy. And the movie gets it right that Morocco was the various imperial powers that already carved up Africa. And it was this and Ethiopia were the last free nations and everybody was scrambling for their peace and there was an incident, I believe it was a year after the time in this movie where Germany made a move and France stood up and it was very close to war. I mean there's a great war fever going on. So the whole tension and you know the balancing of powers and such that they describe was really going on at that time. And the government itself was fairly unstable. Now, I don't know how much, in terms of the big detail, Milius got right. The overall facts, he got wrong. I mean, he made it a good story. Uh, But a thing I liked about this movie is he gets the details right. The little details, the feeling, the atmosphere is very evocative of the period, from what I understand the period to be. And I've always liked this movie. Very good. Jeff,
3: thoughts? As far as the movie goes, I don't know too much about the history. Just, um, um, it's not a period that I've studied up on or I'm very familiar with. And like Mark mentioned, you, you don't see this too often. That's why I think this movie stands out. As far as the movie goes, I, I think it's a stunning epic. It's not for everybody. There is, I think, some great writing in this movie. Emilius was, um, one of the key writers of the, and, and the director of the film. And with anything that Emilius does, um, You know, there's always a level of dry humor and situational humor in his writing, and there there's just some outstanding scenes and lines and interactions between um, you know the side characters. There's really this movie, I think, is told from really three, maybe yeah, about three different points of view. The interaction between um, the main characters and each of those points of view and um, the secondary characters um, is, is very well done. Location-wise, um, th- there is a lot of great photography and um, a, a lot of uh, uh, the, the costume design. And had it not been for, the, um, for Jaws in this year, um, the, the score of this movie may have got an Academy Award. But that darn Jaws movie won out. Bastard
2: got nominated.
3: Uh,
1: full disclosure for the listeners: this is the first time I've ever seen this movie. Believe it or not, I, I, I've been aware of it. It's just one of those movies I just never got around to seeing. Uh, it's a John Milius movie, and you know, first thing that I am just sucked into is uh, the cinematography. That I swear, any movie I ever see with John Milius, if there's one thing that you're going to appreciate is the cinematography. I don't know if he's actually sitting there behind the cameraman and saying, "Here, do this, shoot over here." Do you know? It, it, it's just fantastic. The the scenes and everything like that are wonderful. One thing there's
2: I, there's one scene that just really jumps out at me, and of all of the cinematography, it's the scene where the Rizuli and his forces leave their mountain fastness, and you see them, all of them on horseback, none of that CGI, and they turn the corner and they head down the trail, and in the background, it's dark clouds, and it's that panoramic shot of 70, 80, 100 guys on horseback, and that music, and the dark clouds of a storm building, it, it's just a well-built scene, and it just it really is credit to a great director, great music paired to it, and a fantastic cinematographer. He just puts all that together so well.
1: Absolutely. The one thing that I did want to mention is after watching it, it's a um, again just real quick going back to the plot. You know, the whole idea is that you know Sean Connery plays a Razuli, and he kidnaps Candice Bergen, who is evidently some high influential American citizen, and The whole gambit behind the kidnapping is to, what I gather from the movie, because again, I just saw this movie about two hours ago, was to instigate some type of uprising in Morocco by basically bringing Europeans in and Americans in to either depose the current sultan or not, and then they would uh, basically have a jihad. I mean he never meant her any harm and, and, and they get into that. I mean you saw this movie's got a little bit of that where they you really saw a little bit of the Stockholm syndrome where she finally realizes, you know, he's a he's an educated Arab. He's not just a barbarian. Yeah, well, he is kind of I mean he lops off some heads and hands and things like that throughout the, the show, but he never means her harm. Neither does his men. I mean you actually see a little bit of bonding taking place between the Arabs uh, that kidnapped the kids, and even her, and and, and Candice Bergen just played, and we'll get into that. I just I loved her character. I, I will say there are two people in this movie that really struck me, and it was Candace Bergen and Brian Keith. But I'll get into that later. But one thing I just wanted to mention about this movie, but Mark, I want you to, I, I just want your thoughts on this because I know you're a big T Rex fan, uh, Theodore uh, Roosevelt. It was it was almost like there was a second movie just about him, because there was a lot of time spent on him, and you learn a lot about Theodore Roosevelt in this movie.
2: Yeah, and and Milius, you know, Milius obviously loves Theodore Roosevelt so much so that what twenty five years later he goes and makes Rough Riders, which is Brian Keith's last movie, and he and Tom Berenger plays a young. A young Theodore Roosevelt, and if you really want to get the John Milius take on Theodore Roosevelt, watch Rough Riders, that TNT miniseries, mm-hmm. and then watch this movie in that order. Um, I think he does a fantastic job of capturing the essence of Theodore Roosevelt, the man, just this, this larger-than-life yes. figure who, as you all know, I, he's one of my favorite presidents. I, I just revere the guy. I just am a huge admirer of Theodore Roosevelt. And I think that every scene Brian Keith is in he just inhabits the he just inhabits Theodore Roosevelt. he must have spent hours watching what little footage there was of Roosevelt and listening to him. He gets his mannerisms, his nuances, and theodore roosevelt's views on life his the best lines are theodore roosevelt's yes
1: and and Mark, I want to talk about that. I really want to talk a lot about Brian Keith in this movie because. Uh, it, it, was, it really wasn't a joke in the beginning when I said starring Theodore Roosevelt because talk about, we've talked about other actors that inhabit their roles. I mean, you had you know George C. Scout. We've always said he was born to play George Patton. When you see Brian Keith in this movie, you actually don't even you don't even recognize Brian Keith. You actually think it's Theodore Roosevelt on screen. It's almost to the point of eeriness, how much he looks like him.
2: Yeah, John Hay, played by that great actor, um, John Huston, he kind of has a resemblance. He, he really got people who not only looked apart but inhabited those roles. I mean, Edith oh. Roosevelt was also a character unto herself. At one point, Theodore Roosevelt threw up his hands in exasperation when someone commented about trying to manage Edith and he threw up his hands and said, I can either run the country or I can manage my daughter. I cannot do both. I mean, so those scenes where she's getting in his face and asking him questions that that's just that's straight out of the history books. And that's the other thing I like. He did not treat history fast and loose when it came to Theodore Roosevelt. Wouldn't you guys agree? He played that straight.
4: Well, I mean, for example, I mean, Roosevelt really did get blind in one eye from foxy. I don't think there's any president in my lifetime that I can even imagine, "Eh, it's kind of a slow day. I want to have some fun. Bring a boxer in here so we can go at it. I mean, that's a a whole different mindset.
2: (laughs) Yeah, when he's talking to Alice, when did you get blind? Tuesday last, but don't tell your mother. Yeah, don't tell your mother. (laughs) Even Theodore Roosevelt has a packing order. That's what I love. He even knows. I may be in the president, but don't tell mom.
1: Just jumping back into the characters – uh, between like I said my favorite characters were Ryan Keith and Candace Bergen they were larger than life characters I'll get into it maybe in my review but to me Sean Connery almost played almost like a sideshow character in this I, I almost felt he phoned it in a little bit you know but Candace Bergen her character in this movie was very powerful very forceful I mean Christ she had I, I think she had a Kill count higher than half the Marines that went to rescue her for Christ's sake. <laughs> I really liked her character in this. I really, well, you know,
2: you mentioned Sean Connery, and I like his character in this movie, but it's not a far stretch from another character we saw. It's a variation on the Daniel Dravit character from The Man Who Would Be King. I mean, it's yeah. that kind of role, that larger than life, near do well, bit of a buccaneer. And I I could see the resemblance of both of those. And that's just Sean Connery coming through. I enjoyed it because I think he played a guy with some depth. You thought he was one thing, and then he showed he was another. Um, They could have buffooned him up, and they didn't. I thought that he, he played opposite of Candace Bergen very well. I thought that was an interesting duel of wits, that both of them realized they weren't the person they thought they were by the end of the movie.
1: Right. Let's just jump over there real quick and talk about Sean Connery in this movie. In full, in full disclosure, Jeff and I talked offline a little bit about this. I, I mean, I knew the background about this movie, even though I never saw it. And Jeff, to be honest with you, I still couldn't get beyond Sean Connery playing a Berber slash Barbary pirate because. And- he had that look. He had the look. It's one of those things, I mean, when he's got that headgear on and everything with the sword and the beard, man, the dude looked great. But then he started talking like bush. Yeah. And I kept thinking, "It's like, oh, my gosh, it's James Bond again. And I'm going to kick your nasty ash all over the room. And I'm like, okay, he just, it, I, I'm done.
3: I totally get it. And then that goes to show the the little range he has for actually acting. As far as with his voice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he might have all the great mannerisms, and he might be able to to look the part. Um, something else I wanted to throw in here about him: John Melius had said um, um, regarding Sean Connery, he did not enjoy working with him. And when you had said that you felt like he was phoning it in, Melius's um, comment was: Sean Connery was sour. And dour the whole time, and if it doesn't seem like maybe he's enjoying himself, maybe that's what was going on. Maybe he did not like portraying that. Now I don't necessarily get that. I mean, he he seems to be a very happy-go-lucky pirate, um, bouncing around on his horse, you know, throughout the movie. And and Steve, I totally concur with you regarding um, he. I think he looks the part, but once he starts talking. It, it's, it's you want to go. Okay, were you, were you educated in uh, England or Scotland or Ireland or Indiana? I mean, what, where 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 did you get the accent from? I can I can understand how it detracts a little bit once he starts talking, but as far as him looking the part, and you look at everybody else around him, um, I think he looks the part. Do you guys know who the other person was that was offered that role and turned it down?
1: Yes, and I—that's it, mm-hmm.
3: that, who they should have had. Um, it was Omar Sharif. Yep. Now I've I've looked back through Omar's resume of of movies, and he—I he, think he's made some bad choices at times, and then he's he's regretted some choices that we we've talked about that were, were we thought were well done as far as his bit role in the Thirteenth Warrior. Mm -hmm. um but i mean i i think he would have done an outstanding job in this movie but for some reason he wanted no part of it he was the first person offered the role and um and turned it down but then i look at like i said some of the choices he made and i'm thinking what where were your priorities at but you know maybe he was more of an actor than um you know trying to uh you know you know fill certain roles
1: i don't know was he more of a stage guy because maybe that was it. Maybe some of these stage guys can't deal with the, uh,
3: the film or the movie,
1: the movie aspect. I don't know.
2: He may have backed off of it because wasn't he in Lawrence of Arabia?
4: Mm-hmm. He, he was in Lawrence of Arabia. And he may have said, "I've already I mean, done, done one of the these." That's of the movie that brought him to the you know, to big yeah. attention. He did uh, uh, Doctor Zhivago. Yeah. yeah. About ten years before this, something that he was doing back in that time frame was. He was very deep into bridge. He was like, you know, a world grandmaster at bridge, and I always got the impression that, you know, he was that was a full time job for him back at that time period. I mean, if he could squeeze in an acting gig, he did, but he was too busy doing his other life.
1: Well, one thing about uh, going back to Sean Connery, one thing I noticed is that this is uh, basically a year before he did. Uh, well, let's see. He did, yeah. I mean, he did Zardoz in 1974. This was in 1975. Then he did Man with Who Would Be King in 75. So he did. You know, I, I don't know. Was this maybe the? You know, I gotta, I gotta pay the the rent and the mortgage and whatever else because it just seemed like, you know, this is after the the big time James Bond things. Although he did a few. I guess my biggest drawback in the movie is the fact I just couldn't relate to him. In the role he was in. like For example, um, not to get on a complete sidetrack here, but, oh, Christ, what the hell was a damn movie that came out with the, the Russian sniper versus the German sniper in Stalingrad? And, Stalingrad. Is that what it was? En- enemy at the Gates. Enemy at, enemy at th- the gates. gates. Like, for example, if you're going to play a Russian, I expect you to sound like a Russian.
2: and I, You know, I can get over t- this with The Wind and the Lion for the same reason that I got over it with... And I understand where you're coming from. I get it, Steve. But I can overlook it because, A, I like Sean Connery in the role. And, B, it's the same reason I have with The Duelist. I um, mean, the two leads of The Duelist are in no way, shape, or form anywhere near French. I mean, one one sounds like he's ordering a pastrami sandwich in, <laughs> in downtown New York. But they do such a great job of playing with passion and energy that I can overlook that they don't have the accent. Would I like to have had them do that properly? Sure. And I get it. I get 100% what you say. I, I agree with you. But I can. it's one of those where I just go, yeah I know, it's Sean Connery, but I enjoy Sean Connery in the role. So even though it sounds like the Rizuli went to Eaton, I can live without that, just like I said I can with the movie The Duelist, where you have the two main characters who sound nothing like Frenchmen because i just enjoy the actors in the role and they look they look so damn good in those roles too
4: a thing i liked about sean connery's delivery and you know like all you guys are saying it's kind of and i'm just like mark i mean i got past it but you know it's that whole thing okay he sounds like he's from walking down edinburgh but he's in the mountains of morocco okay yeah he doesn't have the accent but you get that all the time but i like the way that He wasn't portrayed as a buffoon or as a funny guy, but he actually had a lot of humorous lines. They might have delivered deadpan, but in the context of the scene or whatever, you sort of sat back in your chair and smirked a little bit. At least I did. And I thought that lightened it up a bit and kept it going. Because, you know, there's a lot of heavy stuff going on in this movie.
3: Absolutely. Ken, I'm going to jump in here. That's what I was alluding to at the very beginning as far as the writing it is written with a lot of wit to it and the and it, and it goes back to the actors having to deliver the lines though without the actors delivering the lines just right you know you look at the way john houston's interaction is with um with keith david or david Did I say keith david Brian, Brian keith. keith Brian keith those interchanges or just his you know john Huston's side comments when uh when Brian Keith would say something, it was things like that. And I want to just chime in here about the the spunkiness of uh, Candace Bergen's character, which, I, you know, I think was almost a little ahead of its time. But instead of putting a male in that role, put a strong woman in that role. You know, in her two uh, her two uh, her two kids. When we get to the what did George Lucas steal from this movie? Um, yeah. <laughs> I. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, but this kid I, was better than the George Lucas than Anakin.
3: I, I'm just gonna say, once I saw, you know, when I watched this for this podcast, I laughed my ass off because I'm like, this is what he stole, and yep. I just continued to laugh. But the, the writing is very smart, and I think we've noticed that a lot from John Melius. And you know, this is as we said at the outset of this movie or this podcast. You know, this is our third John Melius movie, and I and I thought, gosh, is it that we like John Melius movies? Or is it that John Melius just does good movies? And John
4: Melius likes us.
3: Well, I think if he met God. us, and Steve, if you could get on an interview with him, that would be great. If you can go ahead and call his agent, maybe we could get him on here.
4: Seriously,
1: uh, he, hey, what do I got to lose? He could just say no. You, you well, know,
2: it, uh, he, he strikes me as the kind of guy that if he learned we were doing, we'd done three movie reviews, he'd be like, "Sure, let me know when I can be on." He just strikes me as that kind of guy. You like my movies? Okay.
3: I yeah what do you, what, what are they gonna say no all right maybe at <laughs> a add a hell no to it but you're right we like these types of movies I
2: think Milius is the in many ways if we were going to say the holy trinity of man cave directors he's up there he's a, he is a man cave movie kind of guy he knows how to make movies that guys like that have that have that aren't just explosion fest like Commando of last week or Arnold fest. And don't get me wrong, I like Arnold. But there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of interesting characters. There's some great subplots. There's great pacing, great cinematography. This guy knows how to make e- e- what I'd call a mini-epic pretty well.
1: One thing about Melius that I will say that you do not see with the vast majority of directors out there is the attention to detail. You look at the Marines in this movie. When the American Marines start marching out and the Navy guys that come out and even the Germans, everybody that's over there, you can see that this is a director that takes pride in the fact that I am going to portray very accurate depictions of what the military military troops look like from all the regions in this particular time. And the costuming and everything, and I think that is really what he is best known for, is the realism. And uh, like I said, Melius is one of my favorite directors. I mean, I really have to rank him up there with Ridley Scott in terms of just what he can put on the screen and what he can put on the screen based on the kind of budget that he's given.
2: You mentioned his attention to detail. Yeah, you know, we've seen it in every movie he's done Conan, Red Dawn. This movie, it's one of those movies, and if you go see, um, and I really recommend it if you haven't seen it, Rent, um, Rough Riders, and I caught it this time in this movie. The Navy guys, you know the machine gun that they're pushing along on the little dolly? Yeah. It's It's a colt potato digger. Nobody (laughs) has colt potato diggers but him. No one would pay attention. They'd go, oh, I can get a Maxim gun or a Vickers and no one will know. He knows, and he wants it to be right because that's what the United States Army and Navy had. And the Marines in 1905, and I'm like, that's a freaking cold potato digger. Now, I know that, but I just admire that kind of level of detail. The German cavalry had cavalry Mausers. Yeah. Yeah. It's short-barreled Mauser 98s. They had broom-handled Mausers, I saw, or a broom handle. I saw one officer pull a broom handle. Yep. I'm just like, you know, this guy, he's background material, and he's carting around a broom handle. And I'm thinking, that's awesome. Yep. And, and the, the Arabs, a lot of them are carrying Giselles, you know, the, the local homemade rifle mm-hmm. that's all decorated. And the flags and the costumes and the uniforms, the mat work. One of my favorite scenes is the, is the scene where you see the Marines formed up, getting ready to march in and assault the sheep and the goats and then and the bash <laughs> off. Um, but the mat work in the background of the armored cruisers, that's just great work. Jeff always points out CGI. This is all pre-CGI.
4: Yes. All the
2: special effects, yeah. everything. Yeah. So there's tons of extras in this movie, too, aren't there, Jeff?
3: There, well, there, there are tons of extras. And, you know, we've always talked about how John Milius, he doesn't take shortcuts. And, you know, as I'm watching this movie, and I'm, I'm looking at just – somebody had to take time to, to basically put up all these tents. You know, you look at the outside of the, uh, of, of the castles. You, you just see nothing but like tent cities, and it's like somebody had to actually think that this is what needs to be out here, and then somebody had to take the time to keep putting these up, and changing locations and re-putting them up. Um, and when you see, when you think, okay, well, this is you know early nineteenth, nineteen hundreds, you look at what w- you know the different types of costumes, and I and for well, I couldn't tell that, that I couldn't find any 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 record that this was up for any sort of costume awards, but if you look at the number of costumes that they had to have for this movie, because as we said, there's no CGI here. So everybody that was standing there needed a costume. And, you know, between you know the Marines and between the German officers and um, the Sharif and you know the the Berbers and you just the list goes on and on and on. The townspeople—it is amazing what they were able to authentically put together. And so you go. Well, there was a lot of research that was done with this, and there was no. You know, we didn't want to take shortcuts. I'm sure there was some that were taken, and some you know pure historian could figure it out. But if you're just a layperson and are watching this movie you're going to just i think be mesmerized by the amount of detail that is been captured on on the screen and um, when we also talk about John Melius and the way that he photographs movie that it it, it is not that claustrophobic uh, camera work that that he that he focuses on you know he he is very much trying to think of what's important in the foreground and in the background so all of his shots are carefully calculated and That's what makes this, I I like how you said it's kind of a mini-epic, because it's really not that long of a movie. But it is sweeping in its scope, and it really makes it seem like you've been on kind of a long, arduous adventure with Candace Bergen's character. It's been drawn out, but it is very well put together and cohesive throughout the entire movie. I want to talk about one actor in this movie
1: that... There's two connections the James Bond connection, and there's a John Milius connection here. Uh, and it was the actor that played the Bashaw. Do you guys remember him? Yeah, he was the dude that was smoking the pipe and said the Salt lions. Yes.
2: You oh. are a very dangerous man, and your yes, president, dangerous. Roosevelt, is mad.
1: Yeah. He's a very dangerous man. That is Vladik Shilbel. And he is a good Polish man uh, from. Uh, Lodzki, Poland, and he died in England in 1992 at the age of 69. But for those of you who ever saw the movie from Russia with Love, he played, believe it or not, number two, and he was Kronstein, the chess player.
2: He was also the political officer in Red Dawn. Excellent. Ah, who
4: died quickly. Yep. Yep.
2: Yeah, He was the Zompolite in Red Dawn.
4: Yeah,
1: he was the polite in Red Dawn. So there you go. You've got a John Milius and a James Bond connection right there.
4: A couple of the character roles in here that I wanted to comment on. One, I mean, we're talking and raving about our you know, our mad love for John Milius. But if you're watching this movie, watch carefully because John Milius appears in it. He, he appears as the one-armed military armament salesman who's trying to sell this the Sultan um, probably a load of Maxim guns. It's a it's a funny scene.
2: Did you notice just, he's not only missing an arm, he's wearing glasses and he's got an eye patch. Yeah. So he's missing an eye, got glasses on, and missing an arm. The Sultan likes.
4: But I was I was watching the director's commentary version of this several years ago and if I remember correctly, that scene was inspired because they had the Maxim gun and he said that they were staying in the hotel down the beach. And he, the hotel was run by a gentleman that Milius only described as the old Nazi, some political <laughs> refugee. And they were filming the scene, and they couldn't get the gun to work. And the old Nazi happened to be sitting in the background. And he sort of steps up, says, like, step aside. I'm, you know, I'm very familiar with this model. And, you know, fixed it up. So that's why the sultan's slapping the gun and saying, you know, fix it. The other character that I thought was, I, you know, you guys may differ, but I thought it was a effective role for what he was doing was the young man who was playing William Pedicaris, His name is Sam, Simon Harrison. Uh, I don't know much about him. Generally, I despise <laughs> young schoolboy, a you know, British schoolboy and schoolgirl characters. Harry Potter series yeah I, I can't get into it those they just annoy me and this guy was the epitome of that he had the little Lord Fauntleroy costume on the whole time <laughs> uh, his, and of course they never explained all he's British his sister's British his mom's American uh, you know who knows but really half this movie is seen through his eyes you don't advertise this, side, but it's you know, you're seeing what he's seeing. I mean, he's sort of a major character. At least that's the way I interpret it. You may guys may differ. But I thought he was an interesting character, and he, he's in a lot of different scenes uh, to you know move the story along.
1: No, Ken, that's a good point. He was probably the other character in this movie that was pretty underrated. You didn't really notice him. But you didn't hate the kid because he was a kid in the movie. He really played a pretty good role in it. Uh, and i got to give the little kid credit when they, when they were breaking out for the first time and he uh knocked that one dude over or knocked that one guy out over with the uh the two flower pots and then grabbed his rifle you know he picked up that uh i'm thinking that was probably a mauser or an enfield and uh you know those things aren't
4: light he rode off with that uh holding it up uh pretty well
1: He's him- a
4: resourceful young man for what he was it's you know, always unfortunate when you got to wear the Little Lord Fauntleroy costume. Yeah.
2: I like Captain Jerome.
4: You know, let me
1: make a comment real quick here. All right, when you say about Captain Jerome, the guy that the actor that played him,
2: Stephen Canally.
1: Stephen Canally. When I'm first, when I, because like I said, full disclosure, never saw this movie before. I'm watching the movie. I'm like, wait a minute, how old was Val Kilmer when this movie came out? <laughs> Okay, seriously? <laughs> it's yeah. it's in the eyes, you're right. Is it? Yeah. Because I thought I was sitting there I ran back to the computer, I'm typing up Vel Kilmer, I'm going, When the hell did that guy? Because yeah. he's not I mean, Val Kilmer's not that much older than us. No. And, right. Hey, wait a minute, that that can't be Val Kilmer in this.
4: But it could have been. Could have been his For dad, him. brother, something like that. No, he I, I just, Steve Cavalier, he did this movie and then moved into playing Cliff Barnes in Dallas.
3: Yeah. Or
4: Many many years. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, he's well, I, still working to this day. He he um he, he did a movie this year. Yeah.
2: Oh. And then the other guy is the guy who plays Goomeray, Jeffrey Lewis. If you've seen some of Joffrey. N- Joffrey, 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 Joffrey. All right, you say Jeffrey, I'll say Joffrey. It, you've seen him in some uh, Clint Eastwood movies. He was in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. He was he's in, been in um,
3: everything. The Rough Riders.
2: Yeah. He's been around a ton of movies. Great character actor.
3: You've a lot seen of TV series. Of
2: yep. You always see him knocking around. He was in Rough Riders. When Milius made the prequel, he got him in that movie as one of the uh, one of the old salt infantrymen. So He's fun to watch because, yeah, uh, the Germans and French aren't going to like this. Bit early in the morning for rattling sabers. <laughs> and they're just small roles. That's the other thing. What I really like about this is a lot of the characters have relatively small roles. John Houston's role is not that big, but they inhabit them.
1: All right, uh, gentlemen, I want to move on to our next part of the uh, review, and that is the soundtrack. And I am going to say, again, full disclosure, did not watch this movie up until about, let's see, we're going on three hours now. And the minute the soundtrack started, I wrote on my notes, got to be Jerry Goldsmith. As soon as the credits started rolling, Jerry Goldsmith. I feel vindicated. It's like <laughs> just tell the minute you hear this, it's Jerry Goldsmith.
4: It grabs you. The second this yeah. movie starts, it reaches out grabs you and pulls you in. And you are right. Jerry Goldsmith did it. And as Jeff said, if it wasn't for Jaws, this thing probably would have won an Oscar. Exactly. And I do not want that to come off as
1: a a criticism or anything else. Jerry Goldsmith is probably one of the greatest producers of scores for movies out there. I mean, he's right up there with John Williams and Nina, uh in the Omera cone, you can identify the scores that he does because they're very powerful. And that's one thing about Jerry Goldsmith's stuff is that it's very powerful and it's it's great stuff. Love it. And I love the score on this one. This is actually this is one I'm actually probably going to get on my uh, podcast. Or else, I own
2: it. I love it. I own it. I bought it. Yeah. This, this it's just it's the kind of music I enjoy when I want to see a movie like this, and the move the music fits the the movie. Unlike I listened to last week's podcast. <laughs> you guys are so right about. Wow, I know Steve. You like the music. I'm going to veto you on that one too, and say, "Wow, Commando music! What crap!" Um, wow. This music really fits every scene. I love one of my favorite scenes is when the reporters are talking to Roosevelt about the bear, mm-hmm. and he equates the bear to America. The music is so perfectly paced. It, it It's that haunting theme that where it fits the mood. And I, that's what I love about this. Goldsmith knows how to match great music to what is going up on the screen, just like Williams does, and does it really well in this movie.
3: I don't think he ever got the appreciation that he deserved. He was nominated a lot for his music, but one... An Academy Award one time, and um, and that was for of all things, The Omen. Are you um, serious? Really? Yeah. For The Omen. For The Omen. I mean, you know, he did Patton, L.A. Confidential, one of your guys' favorites, and you know, and he was nominated for this, but the only one he won for was for The Omen. Um, he won other awards, but not the big one. So to say. And it just, it makes me realize that that's, that's probably why the Academy, the Academy Awards came up with the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I liken the Lifetime Achievement Award to the, for the Academy Awards is the, we (laughs) fed up on this, um, guy several times. And so we're going to honor him with a Lifetime Achievement Award because, um, we didn't recognize him when we should have or her. And it is frustrating. And I didn't know that he did, um, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, but again did not did not win it. Um, but you, you're right, Steve. He has a just like with John Williams, these marquee composers and conductors have this distinctive sound, and you you, you know what their work is. And he used a big a big, um, a big perc- uh, percussion session uh, uh, from Morocco for this music, and I think the music it, it's. It's very authentic during um, you know uh, throughout the movie, and he makes sure to use the right right pieces for um, the right scenes, and because it, it's not the same throughout the movie, and it very much mirrors the action that's on the screen. So when there's a dramatic pause, of course there you know the music you know you know mirrors it, and it, it just is in tandem with it the entire time. And I just I when, I when we when I hear Jerry Goldsmith, the first thing I think about is it, what what a man that I think was just wronged as far as a recognition when he was alive.
2: Let's give Milius credit. He knows how to find a good. He finds the right person to score his movies. Look oh, at Conan.
3: Oh yes, God Almighty.
2: Red Dawn did not have a lot of music, but where it did, it worked effectively. John Milius knows how to. He finds that right person to build that theme and score that music for him, and that. That's a credit again to Millius as a director.
1: And that's a good point, Mark, because like I said, Red Dawn, I mean, the music that was there was very good. Like I said, I'll go back to our very first podcast was Conan. This day is my favorite soundtrack. I play, I probably listen to it at least twice a week, uh, at work. You know, at some point it's going to be in my rotation because it is such a powerful piece of music. But, again, this one here with Jerry Goldsmith, I mean, he picked the right guy. It fit in with that period. It was very um, – Jerry Goldsmith does very epic-sounding type of music. And I can't believe the only thing he ever won was for Omen. That's almost unbelievable when you think about the music from Patton. That is another soundtrack that is iconic. Yeah, it's iconic, exactly. I mean, it's it, it's unbelievable that he didn't get an award for that.
2: And if you're right, he just he's he's recognized and he's admired, but he's never gotten, I think, the credit he's due.
1: All right, so we're done with soundtrack. So you know, what it is time in the podcast for uh, brother, what you drinking? And I'm going to shoot this one over to my good and dear friend, Mr. Muncie, because you've got something that you want to share with us
3: tonight. I bring to you this evening something that transcends myth and legend, something that deep down inside all of us young boys, we all admire and fear at the same time. Do you write this stuff down? I just make it up as I go along. (laughs) But tonight, out of the depths and darkness of, pick your local foresty area, comes the Sasquatch Stout <laughs> Oh,
2: really? <laughs> made by whom? And does it taste like Sasquatch feet?
3: Um, it's uh, it's made by uh, it says uh, Lil Um, I beg your pardon? Yeah, it's uh, Lil Juz L-I-L-J-A apostrophe S It's a uh, PangeaBeers.com But, uh it's a stout that is. I um, say it's it's brewed behind a cheddar curtain. I don't know what the hell that means, but um,
4: it brewed in Wisconsin.
3: It, it <laughs> yeah. may be. It may be. Um, hey. But um, but it, you know, it's a nice seven percent alcohol. Um, it's a uh, it's a nice. It's just a nice typical where stout. Does
2: it, where does it rank compared to your stout from last week?
3: Um, where did I get my stout from last week? Bells, bells, bells. Yeah, bells. Oh, bells. Uh, you know it's it's, <laughs> it's right there. You know, on a scale from one to ten, um, it's in there. This this is, I think, now officially the last beer from uh, um, tr- uh, not Trader Joe's from um, uh, Jungle Gems over in uh, over in Ohio. It had a fun label, and I was like, well, I just I just can't pass that up. So, to quote, uh, uh, finding Bigfoot. I think there's a Squatch in these woods. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I've always said if there were Sasquatches in the, in the United States, we would have seen somebody with a Sasquatch pelt by now.
1: I'd have yeah. them stuffed and mounted. We're going to jump over to Ken. Ken, I, I see you drinking out of a bottle, and it's not a wine bottle or a rum bottle. So, uh,
4: we got well, to- I'm actually drinking something that's been reviewed on this show before. Uh, It got good reviews, and uh, we actually purchased it at the same time, my last run to Lexington at the famed and revered Shrine, The Liquor Barn. Dun, dun, dun. And it is Hoppin' Frogs, Boris the Crusher, Oatmeal Imperial Stout. Boris. And I've got to say that with my cholesterol-conscious diet, the doctors say I should increase my oatmeal intake so this does it this is a very smooth tasty brew i like it and for once i get to be in the running of saying that you know this thing has an alcohol content of 9.4 finally finally yeah, we're gonna get. No matter point. how much vanilla vodka I swill, I don't get the Godzilla yell. But finally, I get one. Thank
2: you. No, you know what? For the vod, for the for the vanilla the vodka, Steve, may I suggest we really just need to start doing
4: Godzuki. Godzuki. <laughs> I love Godzuki. Oh my god. Speaking not, of which, just to change not to change the subject, but last week I was hanging out with some some guys, we were doing some gaming, and the game we played was called King of Tokyo. And basically everybody is a different monster, and you have to take over Tokyo and hold it from the other monsters. <laughs> and I won.
2: That's who I'm doing.
4: There was a Godzilla like creature there. There's a giant ape, there's a you know cyborg mecha thing. I was playing the alien, and I was able to pull off a victory. So I was quite proud of that, not knowing what I was doing. But I I'm the king for, of Tokyo.
3: I was waiting for you to say, that when you said the king of Tokyo, I thought you were going to say it was a spinoff from uh, Tune In Tokyo.
4: <laughs> no.
2: At least he wasn't turning Japanese, so he's turning Japanese. <laughs> I
4: think so. Mr. <laughs> Roboto. Oh, God almighty, here we go.
1: All right, Mark, save us. What are you drinking?
2: No, I'm just drinking a tried and true. I was up for the holidays to Indy, and I picked up one of my favorite local breweries, the Sun King Brewery. I'm enjoying a Wee Mac, Scottish-style oh. ale, Hootman. Very good, very good. Uh, it, Sun you know, King I,
4: always puts out a good product.
2: Yeah, I tried their Wee Muckle. Did you try that holiday brew no. that they came out with? Ay, yeah, yi, that one's a little, That that's a little radiator fluidy to me.
4: Their brewery is right downtown, and it's a nice place to visit. They got a nice little market there and everything where you can pick up, you know, whatever you want. Yeah, I
2: like I like Sun King stuff. I think it's really good good beer. Um, and I'm looking forward to whatever on the 26th. Is that when we're having our little brew fest gathering? <laughs> little brew fest gathering. That where we're going, you're going to be getting a car so we can.
1: We have to so get
2: a car, Jesus Christ! There's no a three-hour tour. Yeah, a three-hour tour. <laughs> But that you know, I'm looking forward to sampling all those good beers. I yeah, think we're going to need fifty
3: places to get through. A driver. We'll just have we'll just have Steve carry us. Oh yeah, no, that'll work. <laughs> you know what? I I'll, I will look like Mary or Pippin on top of the tree. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll bring the pipe weed. <laughs>
3: well, I don't know if you'll fit up there. Okay. Oh man,
1: that would be
3: it. There we so go. So, what are you drinking, Steve? Behold,
1: I am drinking the Goose Island Bourbon County Brand Coffee
2: Stout. Coffee? Bourbon County? Is it coffee stout with bourbon flavoring?
1: Wow. I don't know, because uh, the alcohol content pretty much kicks it up to a bourbon, bourbon count there. That's Ooh. all I've been drinking tonight, and it Ooh. is. All right. Uh, I'm just going to say this is a great coffee stout and Jeff. Brace yourself! This thing makes an imperial stout look like uh, actually a colonial protectorate. (laughs) It is fourteen
2: (laughs) point
1: three.
2: How much? Wait, wait, wait! Stop! What?
1: Fourteen point three percent alcohol.
2: Holy! Oh my! Give yourself another
3: one. It's a record.
2: How does that stuff taste?
1: It's um Does it burn? Let's put it this way. I've been drinking this thing from the start of the show. And I've got half the bottle still to go. It's uh Well let's put it this way. It's a um shit, what the hell is that?
2: No wonder your tongue's stuck to the roof of your mouth. No kidding.
1: Well your sinuses are
4: uh, kind of stuffed up at the start of the podcast, but they seem awful cleared out for some reason. No, wow. this is a one pint.
1: This is a pint. Oh. And I'm oh. only about halfway through.
3: Well, if you had any throat cancer, it took care of that too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> if he's got the French disease, it took care of that too. God, fourteen! Oh my God, that's how many proof? We're, we're not even talking alcohol content now; we're talking proof.
1: Let's put it this way: this thing, this this pint cost me fourteen dollars.
2: Holy crap! Yeah. Oh. Wow. Let's put what this, motivated you to spin the wheel on that one and take a risk?
1: Because it said Berman County, and it said Coffee Stout. <laughs> I think even the old dude was checking me out. He said, you're actually paying 14 with tax, 15 bucks for a bottle of beer. I went, stout, dude. Come on, what do you
3: want? It's, it's <laughs> stout. It, when you open this bottle and up you just and you get your fork and knife out and yeah. feast upon it, you will understand.
2: He did.
1: He just kind of shook his head, bagged it, and sent me on my way. So,
3: <laughs> and said as you walked out the door, "Dumbass,
2: <laughs> you want me to call? You want me to call the uh, emergency transport people?" I'm telling you
1: what. The only other time that I uh, had something this strong was that whatever the hell that freaking beer was. Yes.
2: Drank it. Oh, that thing was
1: to like stripped the,
4: strip the stain off marks. Uh, torch uh, it
2: was it was like the alien acid it ate through my deck <laughs> down through my second
3: deck <laughs> i remember tasting that
2: yeah. taste just, is that what you call it
3: oh taste. i i you know i hell I, I had to light my tongue on fire to get it all <laughs> and and
1: just so you know this is a goose island beer
3: wow yeah who knew that the Coos That's Island that. Could, could have the balls to make something like that?
1: Oh, I'm telling you right now, it was, it, like I said, it was
3: 13.99. Would you do it
1: again? Would you do it again? I'd buy it again. <laughs> I'd buy it again. No, seriously, Jeff, Jeff, you would, oh, seriously, you would love
3: this. A, all right. yes. Yeah. Do it again. One more date with her? <laughs> <laughs>
2: you like That's the dog faced woman?
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Find my keys and we'll drive out. <laughs> okay.
3: <laughs> okay. Drive the car back on the road. So we're done with
1: that. And I'm going to go on the trivia while I can still actually uh, pronounce words. Uh, since I'm drinking my Bourbon County Goose Island 14.3%, I think that the,
2: good. I... Backlit, smart.
1: Oh, all right, trivia. Great trivia in this one. Uh, the story was based on a historical incident involving the kidnapping of Eon Petticaris, an American expatriate living in Tangier, changed to a woman for the movie. However, the two children, the American attack on the Bashaw's Palace in Tangier and a climactic battle between the American and German forces were inventions of writer-director John Milius. So there you go. Uh, Faye Dunaway was the first choice for Eden Pedicaris. I, I could have bought that. She was
3: too sick to uh, to do it. No, Candace Bergen did a fantastic job. Amelia had a slight issue with her. Um, he said that uh, she was more focused with... Um, he felt her very one-dimensional as far as an actress and uh, was um, and, and thought that she spent too much time trying to make herself look pretty.
1: Does Candace Bergen actually have to... M- try to look pretty?
4: Yeah, she has to work real hard at it. Yeah.
1: Really, really yeah.
4: hard. I think like she, she rolls out of bed and actually shakes her head, and she looks gorgeous. You know?
1: <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, going back to the beginning of the show, um, Omar Sharif and Anthony Quinn were possible um, roles for the lead. You know what? Anthony Quinn would have been awesome in this.
4: He could have done it. Oh
2: my god, he would have been so much Anthony Quinn could have done it more than Omar Sharif. Either
1: one of those guys could have done it better than Sean Connery. I,
2: I don't know if Omar Sharif had had that the big guy energy uh, you know what I mean? There, he, there could a, have
4: done, he would have been the best it, of the ones we talked about.
2: I don't I, know. Oh no, no, no. I disagree.
1: I I will I will side with Mark on that. If it was between Sean Connery and Omar Sharif, right. Omar Sharif had a little bit more of that laid back Elegant. Yeah, elegant attitude. Anthony Quinn, oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: I could have Anthony.
4: seen him easily in that role. That well, was, I, think, I think Anthony Quinn was busy when this was being filmed because he was preoccupied doing high risk, I think, at the time.
2: There you go.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, 20 U.S. Marines were used in the making of this picture as were a number of special forces troops from the Spanish Army. The military scenes are used as trending films for the U.S. Marine Corps. There you go. The final battle took two weeks to film. Real dynamite was used.
2: Shocking. That is an awesome battle. That final battle. You've got French 75s. You've got charging cavalry. You've got... Machine guns—you've got everything that's anything that w- existed in 1905. They pretty much had that battle. It was great. Uh,
4: this was done in an earlier age. Now, when you watch adventure movies nowadays, they always had that little thing in the credits saying no animals were actually harmed in the production of this movie. <laughs> they couldn't put that in this thing. I mean, no. these, those horses were—they took a beating.
1: We're going to get to that, Ken. We're going to get to it. Uh, Terry Leonard. Who, uh, was a stunt dude in, um, Conan? Uh, he was the film stunt coordinator, did most of the action horse scenes, and can be seen as President Roosevelt's sparring partner in the boxing scene.
2: That's great. That boxing scene. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I just like the one part where, where the guy, where he looks at Hayes and says, what? It <laughs> gets popped. <laughs> it just pops him in the ribs. It's like, <laughs> you son of a bitch.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, can't, I, I can't see like George Bush or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama setting up a ring at the White House and inviting talented people to come in and spar with them. It just God. doesn't fit the modern presidency. You can't even no. know barack obama playing badminton but all right moving
1: (laughs) after receiving a list of something requests to remove horse falls uh director john neelys withdrew the film from intended uk video release in 1990 and claimed no animal cruelty had taken place his claim was supported by stuntman terry leonard who threatened to sue this uh, It looks like it's the British version of the ASPCA or whatever the tree-hugging animal lovers in this country like for besmirching his professional reputation. All right, uh, last piece of trivia. According to John Melius, when the film was screened for President Gerald Ford, Ford remarked that he recognized the place they filmed, Yellowstone National Park, well, because he used to be a ranger there. John Milius refrained from informing him that the entire movie is filmed in Spain. Spain. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
4: but I've been to Yellowstone, and it i mean—it does have hills with trees on it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah it's got a, that one. Yeah, so. Hey, Steve, I've got another piece of trivia for you. Bring it. I was lit watching an interview with John Milius, and he was talking about he was editing this movie while next door, essentially, to him, Spielberg was working on Jaws. Yes, and when he was taking a break from editing the movie, he would go over and help Steven Spielberg manipulate the shark. And he said, "Yeah, so we'd you know we'd we'd move the shark to try and get these scenes or whatever we're trying to." And the shark would break, and Steven would throw his hands up in disgust. And he'd come over and help me edit my movie because he get so frustrated with the shark. What? So. He had this comment about Steven Spielberg telling him edit his movie while he was helping him manipulate the shark making Jaws.
1: Well, you know what? Spielberg, Milius, and Lucas. They all came up together. At, like in the same class. At UCLA. At UCLA, yeah. at UCLA. Exactly. I mean, those guys were all buds. To be honest with you, it's like, I'll guess Spielberg is due. I think Milius got the short end of the stick over Lucas. You know, Lucas had... Um, well,
2: Lucas stole all of Milius' ideas, right, Jeff? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what. We're going to have a field day on that
1: part. I've got a few of my own, and I normally don't. But uh, So that's it. We're done, we're done with trivia. We're done ranting on, uh, well, we're not done ranting on him, but uh, we're going to go on to Clips, the favorite part of the show. We're just going to go with this one. Well as I do,
0: we can't have Arab desperados running around kidnapping American citizens. If I had my way, I'd go in there with a couple of Winchesters,
1: battalion oh. of Marines. Ah, I can't do that, can I? Oh. Oh, that's right. That's when
2: he was boxing with. Um... Yeah, you can hear the blows hitting. <laughs> All right, number two.
1: I uh, don't know what this one is. Oh, I know. I I've got it. Is Sean Connery. So this is obviously a quote from him. Woman, I want you to understand this. <laughs> I am not a barbarous man.
0: I am a scholar and a leader to my people. I am not a barbarous man.
1: So there you go. The first time you heard uh, Sean Connery talk is a uh, uh, Scottish uh, Highland. <laughs>
4: I think that was the scene where just after that, he explained that a barbarous man would have cut off all four of the heads, But he right. spared two of them so they could talk about what a non-barbarous man he was.
1: Exactly. That was, uh, the, uh, excellent point, Ken. That was, uh, he had only killed two of them and spared the other two.
2: Uh, well, Steve, you are right. He is of the McRizuli clan. <laughs> the, the southern Scottish Arabs.
4: <laughs> From the highland section of the Rift. The, the,
2: the highlanders of the Rift, the McRizuli.
1: Beautiful. Very well done. Love it. All right, uh... Now, this is where uh, Candace Bergen, this is where you actually get to see a little bit of her spunk in this movie.
0: Do you pray often?
1: I pray to Mecca five times a day. Is
0: that so? I wonder how you find the time. You are so busy cutting off men's heads and kidnapping women and children. I miss the morning prayer, I pray
2: twice in the afternoon. (laughs) She's a strong female lead. I really like her. She's She's spunky.
1: wonderful in this movie. Yep. I, I really can't. Imagine anybody else playing the role as well she did.
2: She was- the scene where they're playing chess. Yes. Where
4: she's. Nope, stop. Hey, oh. yeah, Stitch time saves the night. Yes.
2: <laughs>
4: There we go. Make your move. There we go.
0: And the fool and his money
1: are soon parted.
0: I've checked your queen also. You are in a lot of trouble. You should never have moved that bishop or kidnapped me. Both will see you undone.
2: Agreed. And I love the way Sean Connery kind of leans down and looks sideways at the table. Yes. He's looking at the pieces like, how'd we get there?
4: Yeah. How the hell He's did he get bested do. by a woman?
2: Yeah.
4: yeah.
1: Uh, number five.
0: What is that?
1: <laughs> that is a tongue. It does.
0: Well, why would anyone want to cut out a man's tongue? Perhaps the previous owner had nothing pleasant to say. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I I love that scene, because right after that dialogue, the two kids are up there going, like, looks like a tongue. They're sitting there poking it, prodding it. And the mom's (laughs) just appalled, like, get away from that tongue.
1: All right, this is actually my favorite quotes in this one here. This is a Teddy quote. Great stuff.
0: American grizzly bear is a symbol of the American character. Strength, intelligence, ferocity. A Little blind and reckless at times courageous beyond all doubt
2: i love that quote
4: and like you said this movie it's this is a movie about teddy roosevelt i mean it is a character study at the same time it's an adventure story exactly ken and that is how i felt
1: about this movie it's a character study of him as well as a side story of everything else and for those of you who are listening i didn't even capture half of of the Teddy Roosevelt quotes in this movie because you have to see it. Uh you can't just get it in the bits and pieces. Seriously, watch the movie.
2: It's and it is streaming free on Amazon if you've got Amazon Prime.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Uh number seven. Once again you have blundered both in regard to the stock dimensions and the recoil pad. How long will these mistakes be repeated, huh? Eh? After all, I am the president of the United States. I see no reason why an American president can't get satisfaction from an American gunmaker. Huh?
1: Eh? Well, that particular quote was because, um, you know, the Winchester uh, Rifle Company sent uh, Teddy Roosevelt a new rifle for his birthday that didn't quite fit his dimensions that he wanted. Yep. And um, But I'll tell you right now, gentlemen, I do have, seriously, the actual sound clip of what Teddy Roosevelt actually said to the Winchester company. You have failed me for the last time.
2: <laughs> 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 A little deeper uh, voice than Teddy, but yeah, it works.
1: George
3: Lucas stole that from Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. All right.
1: This is how I actually pictured Teddy Roosevelt. He was this type of guy.
0: Hey, standing there like that, young man. In regard to your... Well, speak up, speak up. This is a government,
1: not
2: a rest storm. What is it? Uh, it-
1: <laughs> he was just very down to earth. What do you got in your mind? Say it. Speak it.
2: I've got things to do. Get on with it.
1: All right. There you go, Mark. You're going to love this one.
0: You see what's wrong here, young man? It's the position. You've made this fine specimen of a grizzly look like a hairy cow. How would you like to be portrayed as a hairy cow if you were a grizzly bear? Huh? Or Jeff Muncy. <laughs> and you
1: know, there, was a, there was a thing that he did. Every time he would ask a question, you'd go, huh? huh?
2: Huh? Huh? And then he wouldn't let you answer. He'd just plow right on. Right. All right. Last one. Theodore.
0: You're dangerous. You might even shoot somebody. Accidentally, I mean. John, I'd never shoot anyone accidentally. I need their
4: votes. (laughs) Again, that was a John Huston theme. John Huston, an American cinematic icon who does a great job in this movie in the scenes that he's in.
2: Yeah, and this, you're right. It's just that you just picked out just some of the high points of the Theodore Roosevelt quotes. Yes. There's that great interplay with Alice. Talking about greatness mm-hmm. and about great men. There, there's some real thoughtful screenwriting in this movie. I mean, it's an adventure story, but there are some real solid, small, little one on one scenes where there's some very thoughtful screenwriting and some very good, good writing in this movie. Yeah,
4: you get the impression that Milius really just wanted to make a movie all about Roosevelt. He probably admires Roosevelt tremendously. But he couldn't get the angle to make an epic, big Hollywood movie out of just a biography of Roosevelt. I mean, sad to say it, but it would be very hard. So he sort of split the difference. I mean, half this is a character study. The other half is an epic you know, adventure story out somewhere else.
2: The other thing, a lot of times when you see these kinds of split episodes within a movie, they don't tie well back together because they're pretty distinct. One's occurring in another location with completely different groups. The other is off stage with Theodore Roosevelt, and they're very distinct. But they, the way this thing was edited, I think that, that's a credit, too, to Milius and the editors. They tied those stories and those fades from one chapter of this story to the other very well.
1: All right, we're done with clips. Let's move on to the uh, checklist. Number one, did anyone jump out of a window?
4: Yes, uh, during the initial scenes where uh, the Rysouli's men are abducting Candace Bergett's character, one of the horsemen jumps through a lattice-covered window into the garden. Well, there you go. Number one's checked off. Minute. Excellent. Hold on. He did, again, say what again? He he, he he did what? He jumped through a window, and the window had that wooden latticework screen over it. Oh, so it wasn't a glass window, but it was a window. Well, there was also a guy that was shot. Yes. at the
3: He was shot on like a second or third story, and he fell through the window then, down through like a canopy, too. You are correct. So I was making sure I wasn't going to repeat the same one you did.
1: Okay, number two, was there an irrelevant female role in the movie? No. no. I have to agree. All right, we're going to jump on to number, uh, shit, we can't do three and four because there is no irrelevant female role. Um, number five, did this movie know what it wanted to do? Yes. Completely, and it did it.
3: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Number six, did George Lucas steal any part of
2: this movie for Star Wars? Clear the deck. Here comes Jeff. I'm, I'm <laughs> stepping back. He's
3: been saving up. All right, Jeff, bring it. Bring the heat. When Candace Bergen and her kids are going to make their escape, right? They've made the deal with the uh, Underling, who's going to take them off out of the encampment from uh, from yeah. Sean Connery's character, right? When <laughs> the kid, uh, the boy, is um, he he goes up and he clobbers some guys on over the head with some sort of like pot or something, right? If you look, he looks just like a Jawa.
4: Oh,
1: okay. Once he, son of a bitch! You stole it from me. I'm like, they both look like jobs.
2: They did.
1: Woo, they diddy!
2: Well, <laughs> wow. There you have it.
4: Let's see, when this was being filmed, this was filmed, what, maybe a year before Star Wars? Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. Legitimate theft here. Eden, Eden. Perry Karras is is Princess Leia. There you go. <laughs> There <laughs> they
4: both have a bizarre hairstyle thing going. Well,
2: and we have a man in black come and take them away for their own ends.
4: Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this. We have the scenes in this movie where the Marines are marching and they're all in tight formation. Going, Trump, 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 Trump. Then in Star Wars, Han Solo is trying to get to the loading dock and he turns a corner and what does he see? Stormtroopers in tight formation going tromp, 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 tromp. <laughs> Almost, I, mean, I think they pulled the. I think they pulled the uh, the the audio out of this movie and just plugged it in there for the footsteps.
3: Anything else? I did see some similarities here between this and what he ended up doing in Conan when um, uh, Connery's character went up against the um, German officer on that was mounted. Mm-hmm. And um, and in Conan, in his final battle against, um, well, not the final battle, but um, where he is, um, where Conan goes, uh, him, and um, I can't remember the bodybuilder that was on the horse that charged him.
1: Um, That was an Oakland Raider. Oh,
3: sorry, my fault. I should have known that. Um, Yes, the Oakland Raider. I can't remember the character's name, name, but... The, the scene is very similar there. You know, he goes low to avoid him and takes out the horse or whatever. But
2: I've, I've got one more. George Lucas stole the voice of Admiral Akbar from Goomeray. It sounds just like
4: Goomeray. It
2: sounds just like Goomeray. Oh, the French and Germans aren't going to like this. Oh, the Empire isn't going to like this. It's a trap.
1: <laughs> All right.
3: Oh, my. Moving on. Number oh, seven. wait. <laughs> no, got one more, but wait. Wait, there's more.
1: No, there's no more. No. Go on. Cut you on. off. Number seven, Mr. Muncy,
3: was there a Babylon 5 reference in this movie? I'm going to do it. I'm going to say yes, and, and here's why I'm going to say yes. is because this guy has come up in several podcasts. Um, or I should say he's been, he's been refer he he has been involved in some of our previous podcasts. Um, he is not an act He is either a he was either a stunt person or the stunt coordinator and he was in a, a number of um, well he he did all the stunts for 110 episodes of Babylon 5. He was uh, involved in almost all the movies and also did stunts for uh, The Wind and the Lion, 1941, uh, Red Dawn, and, and, well, he did it for one of the... uh I thought he did it for one of the Die Hard movies. Oh, he did. He did it for but we haven't talked about that one with uh, Die Hard with the Vengeance. And that man's name, and I just wanted to take some time to read, to just send a shout-out to him because apparently he's been involved in a lot of stuff that we would like. Um, more recently, he was the stunt coordinator in Justify, the TV series, which, by the way, is one of the greatest things on TV Starts ever. back up when? Sunday, maybe? Yeah, or Tuesday? Anyways, uh, this month. Um, his name was uh, Kerry Rosal and um, he has been in a, involved in a lot of big name movies: um, The Fugitive, um, The Green Mile, Apocalypse Now, um, The Muppets. Um, the, the list goes on. Um, uh, just his pedigree of either he was a stunt man, he, um, he is basically graduated to stunt coordinator. But he, like I said, he was involved in all. All of the Babylon Five um, stunts um, that that were done. So there we are. I want to give a little credit to the man. Whoa.
1: All right, it is time for the uh, man cave movie review, Mister Mark. I'm gonna throw this one to you, sir.
2: I will just tell you right now, I love this movie. I'm just going to tell you, it's a ten. It's a ten to me because it does it all. It, it delivers what I like in a man cave movie. It's got it's a great historical piece. It's got wonderful actors. It's a it's shot well. It's edited well. It's one of my favorite directors. It's got some as I said great actors. It has Theodore Roosevelt, so that catapults it right there for me. I just really enjoy this period. I enjoy this style of storytelling. This is one of my favorite movies, so when I say it's a 10, it's because it has a special place in my heart. I don't know, I could, I could go on. I just find wow. this movie, I always find something I enjoy every time I watch this movie, and it pretty much boils down to anytime Brian Keith is on the screen, um, I could just rewind those scenes ad infinitum. It, it does it all for me. It's a great adventure story. It's a smart plot. It's well-paced. The actors know their roles; they do them pretty well. Yeah, Sean Connery is 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 the Macduff of the the South Scots, but I can get over that because I enjoy him as an actor. It's an ultimate quintessential man cave movie, and it's one of my favorites. So it's a ten.
1: Wow, very good. Yep. Nice. No, like it. And and Mark, I can't disagree. Can't disagree with that, uh, Jeff. What do you say, sir?
3: I you know I have to thank Mark and Ken. Um, years ago, they turned me on to this movie. And I think I rented it, and then after I returned it, I went out and bought the movie. To me, I love those movies that make me have an epic feel about it. And every bit of this, you know, the musical score, the way that uh, Milius has um, has directed and shot this movie, it feels like a grand production. And I appreciate everything he did. And I, And I, of course, I... I dearly love the man. Um, I think he is a sheer genius, um, maybe even better than Steven Spielberg. And because of that, I mean, this, this movie is, to me, is outstanding. And I think doing the dual writing and directing of this movie, really, it it, it goes to show that when a, when someone's, it, we've said it before, Steven St- Spielberg and some other directors, that when they start out, they're hungry, they're Anxious to kind of get their teeth into uh, into filmmaking, and 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 that is when some of their best films are made. And I really think that this is one of his best films. It is not well known; not a lot of people can see it, and I don't I don't know if a lot of people can appreciate it. But um, I think it's great, and I, I can't really think of any issues I have with the movie, and therefore I am going to also give it a ten. Holy shit. Yep. I thought about it. I thought, I can't think of anything I don't like about this movie. Yeah, Connery and his bad acting as far as voice. Um, but when, when you look at all the moving pieces together and how well they work together, I can't think of anything that I don't like about this movie. All right. Okay. Ken, your thoughts?
4: A lot of what I would be saying has already been said. And I announced several episodes back that I'm going to be using the Netflix five-star system times two in my ratings. And I love this movie. I always have since I first saw it. And if you go to Netflix list, love, the movie is five stars times two is ten. Wow. (laughs) Holy cow. Hat trick so far. Ding, ding,
3: ding. Mr. Host, what do you have to say for your first viewing? Talk about <laughs> being put on the spot here for a show.
2: No, it's your
1: no. I no. Seriously, be honest with you. I really did like this movie, and Maybe I just- need to
3: digest it a little more. Maybe you need to watch it three or four more times and really?
1: really. No, my thing is is that I'm gonna first viewing. I'm gonna give it a. I'm honestly, I will give it an eight point five. It is a very well done movie, and I will tell you right now. Do you know what my big drawback is? Believe it or not, it's Sean Connery. Yep, that's it. If you would have put, no, seriously, if you would have put Anthony Quinn in that role, boom, 10. It's one of those things where I get sucked into the movie. I get really drawn in until he starts talking, and it's like it didn't mix. If you took him out and stuck in somebody that actually could pull it off, oh, yeah, I would have given this a 10. But that was my thing. But for me, an eight and a half, dude. That's it's pretty top, pretty top notch for me.
3: Well, so the big difference is if you can buy into Sean Connery, or if you just don't care, then then this movie will will be up a little bit on the scale. But if if, if you can't get behind Sean Connery, then um, you know that then it's it's a still a great solid movie, but you're just not going to give it as, as the highest marks. Okay.
1: Well, you know, one of the things is with Sean Connery's I don't want to say he was typecasted, but you see him in a certain role. And this was not his role. Maybe, I, I don't know. I just I just see him in certain roles, and this just did not fit him. It was almost like he was forced into it. It's like, all right, here, you have to play this character. And he's like, all right, I'm going to try to make it work. And it didn't work for him. I like the movie. For me to give it an eight and a half, I loved it because again, I loved the cinematography, loved the music, loved the storyline. Good Lord Almighty, you know Brian Keith basically reincarnated Theodore Roosevelt in this movie. So there was so much stuff going for this thing, and again, that was my one little piece. So basically, for me to say an eight and a half, that one point five to give it a ten was Sean Connery. And I feel bad saying, because I love Sean Connery, but it's just like, he just didn't... I can't see James Bond sitting in that role. That's me. All right? That's it. I'm done. That's, That's cool. cool. That's fine. 8.5 is a solid... It's a solid thing. Yeah. Like I said, And part of it is, with me, folks, there's certain actors you see in certain roles that they can play. And, you know, Sean Connery didn't fit in this one for me, but the rest of the movie is fantastic. So... That's it. All right, folks, that's it for Man Cave Movie Review, episode 45. Stay tuned for us next week where we're going to be talking about Fandango. So check us out on our website at uh, mancavemoviereview.com and look for us on iTunes and Man Cave Movie Review. Leave us a comment, tell us what you liked about the show or didn't like about it. We're on Facebook, so look for us there and give us a like if you uh, like the show at uh, Man Cave Movie Review. And we're also at Twitter and Man Cave Movie, so follow us there to see what we're going to be talking about next. So this is it. Until then, I'm your host, Steve Michael, signing off with my good and dear friend Mark. Why spoil the beauty of things with legality?
2: Slover. May the breath of this podcast be like the wind that has brought it across the airwaves. Strong. But a man cave wind, marked by its alcohol.
1: Excellent. See, you could have done a better
2: Razuli than Sean (laughs) Connery. Because I'm on cold medicine. (laughs) Well, there you go.
1: And also saying farewell and adieu is our other good and dear friend, Jeff. Where's my human stepstool, Muncie?
3: (laughs) The world will never love us. They respect us. They might even grow to fear us, but they will never love us. For we have too much audacity. And we're a bit blind and reckless at times, too. And drunk. Nice. And drunk.
1: Yep. Very well done. And last and certainly not least is our other good and dear friend saying farewell adieu and Avida Zan is our good and dear friend Ken. Just call me Rizulu, Defender of the Faithful. Rony.
4: The winds are shifting. Everything is shift blowing away. It's been a bad year. But next year... It'll only be worse. I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about politics. But oh. that's <laughs> another thing.
2: <laughs>
1: well, there's Mister Optimism saying farewell on the do. Guys, hope you like the show. A good shout out to everybody who has listened to us, including our good and dear friends from overseas. This is me, your host Steve Michael, saying farewell on the do and ciao. Good night. No, no. you download porn when you're trying to do a porn, uh, podcast. A <laughs> podcast, <laughs>
3: you're right.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: well, we know what's going in the outtakes. <laughs>
3: say it that fast three times. Can... Or wait a Good minute, Steve. Steve. You Just can... try to say it one time. <laughs> 4.2. 14.2. Mark can't get it right either. Dar dar
2: dar. I'm on cold medicine. That's my excuse. Oh, yeah, that's your excuse. You're on cold medicine. All right.
1: Uh checklist. All right. We already have all right, let's just start this all over again.